If you will rise, we will read our Old Testament lesson this morning, which comes to us from Genesis 18. We are beginning the section uh, on Sodom and Gomorrah. We really began it last week. We'll see that in our sermon. But as we begin this passage today, we'll pick up uh, part of what Brian preached last week with verse 16, and we'll continue through the end of the chapter. You should be able to find this on page 13 of your pew Bible if you haven't found it yet. Beginning in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. If you'll join me in the prayer for illumination printed in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel of John. We'll be reading uh, the entirety of chapter 17. You can find it on page 903 of your Pew Bibles. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Please join me in the prayer for illumination printed in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, 
The prophet says in Isaiah 64, verse 1, why does the prophet do this? Why is he calling for God to pull apart the heavens and come down to earth? Because he longs for judgment. We don't do well these days with God's judgment. We don't generally want it. It makes us uncomfortable. Some of us here, I know I did, probably grew up with a constant threat. Is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? Do you want to get left behind? I heard that one a few times. Or perhaps you grew up with hellfire and brimstone preaching, lots of judgment, jeremiads they're sometimes called. Hellfire and brimstone is a phrase taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a biblical phrase, but maybe you grew up with that kind of preaching. Now you're uncomfortable with God's judgment. There might be a handful, small amount here, uh, who recall four years ago, I was sitting there in the pews, and we had a psalm of the month. It was November, four years ago. And it was Psalm 137. It's a beautiful psalm. Uh, but I recall singing all of the stanzas of Psalm 137, one of those Sundays. It's an unforgettable experience. We sang the last stanza. Most people would probably cut off before that. This is my translation of those verses. Daughter of Babylon, to be destroyed. Blessed is the one who pays you back what you have shown us. Blessed is he who grabs and smashes your children on the rock. I recall, after we finished singing that, that we stopped and Brian was standing there and he said something like this. We're almost certainly the only church in this area singing that this Sunday. He's right. I'm sure it wasn't a song that was being sung in a lot of churches that Sunday. It's a hard thing for us to sing. It's a hard thing for us to read sometimes. People will talk about the imprecatory psalms, not necessarily knowing what to do with them. C.S. Lewis, I believe, called them sub-Christian in his book on the psalms. What do we do with those? What do we do with these passages? They're hard. One thing just briefly on Psalm 137 before we jump into Genesis, is that these words, blessed, blessed, it's the same words we find in places like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And the blessed one there, and in Psalm 2, is the Messiah. It's the king that points forward to Christ. Jesus is the one who is blessed. Jesus is the one who executes judgment, the king. We should remember that as we hear these things. His justice is perfect. Christ's justice, the Messiah's justice. And it will be visited upon the wicked according to what they have shown his people and according to what they have done. I think the implication there in those last verses of Psalm 137 is that this is something they themselves have experienced. They lost their children because of the Babylonians. Christ will come back in judgment. 
I wouldn't say that we're good at longing for this the way the psalmists were, the way the prophets were. We avoid it. We have a hard time singing it. We talk a good bit about justice. We talk a bit about peace in society. But the thing we often fail to reckon with is that we are by nature unjust and at war. Before God, we are sinful. Before God, we are unjust. Before God, we are by nature children of wrath, warring with Him. If we want to invoke peace and justice, we need to also remember judgment. God's response to sin is that it must be paid for. It's a debt owed to His majesty. All wickedness, great and small, will come before Him and be judged. All is condemned by His law and by His holiness, who He is. This story is connected. We're going to look at, at Abraham's prayer, but it connects to the broader story. And you can see this connection really well if you pay attention when you read 18 and 19 to the places. There's a pattern. It's almost like going out and coming back. So we begin with Abraham, like we heard last week, in his tent. And then he goes out to the Oaks of Mamre. From there, he will look to Sodom. And then we'll shift in chapter 19 to entering the city of Sodom. And then we'll go into Lot's house. Then we'll come out of Lot's house. We'll come out of Sodom. We'll return to Abraham, who goes out from his place to the Oaks of Mamre. And then at the very end, he finally returns to his place likely his tent. He sees what the Lord has done. This is a common technique for remembering stories in oral cultures. Um, you can remember there and back, and if you remember all the things along the way, you can remember the story. Um, it's invoking spatial memory. We remember things by places. I had a friend in college who, when he was studying for uh, any kind of test, would just hide answers all over his dorm room. And so he would walk around in a path, and he would like open a drawer and look at an answer. He did very well on tests. He involved his spatial memory. He had no roommate. That's why he could do this. But he did. They were all over his room. I remember watching him do it once. That's what's going on here. And it connects, right? Those patterns connect us. There are other interlocking patterns here. Lot will also offer a plea, not just Abraham. He will plea to go to a city instead of having to go to the hills. And it's granted to him. One of the things that when we take these two together that we see, we see a couple of things, is that Sodom fails the test that Abraham passes. Only Lot, an immigrant, a foreigner, Remember, they point that out to him. You're not one of us. Only he offers any hospitality. And as I already mentioned, Lot, please, like Abraham, please, before the angels. It's also important for us to remember as we come to this story that this is not the first time we've seen destruction in Genesis. The way we've preached through this, we've split up our series, but we have a series on Genesis 1 through 11, and then we picked back up with chapter 12 recently and started the Abraham cycle. But there was a flood. 
It's the central part of Genesis 1 through 11. It's the longest thing, the flood. And many writers point out that there are intentional parallels here with the flood. The one who gets saved afterwards gets drunk and has some difficulties with his children. We'll put it that way. Both accounts describe this destruction as ruin. It's not how the ESV translates it. But when the Lord says, I will not destroy, he says, I will not ruin it. It's the same word that's used in the flood. We also see that Noah is shut up in the ark, right? The door is shut up after him. And Lot, when he goes out to protect the angels, shuts the door up after him. It's the same phrase. The angels also pull Lot in and shut the door up after him. In both stories, God is described as making it rain, though in this one, it's a metaphor. He's raining hellfire and brimstone. And in both stories, we see that God remembers. He remembers Noah in the first one, and here, he doesn't remember Lot, he remembers Abraham. So that brings us to our first point. If you're a note taker, you'll find an outline there in your bulletin. We'll talk about Abraham as a mediator. We'll also talk about Abraham's righteousness. And then we'll talk about Jesus as the better and more righteous mediator, bringing those two things together. But what Abraham is doing to begin our first point is he's mediating. He's even mediating for the nations. As we read, God says to himself, likely God is reflecting and we're hearing kind of a metaphorical inner dialogue of God, what will I say to Abraham? He's righteous. In him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then what do we get? We get Abraham praying for a foreign city. Somebody not in his covenant. And this petition that Abraham brings, this mediation, comes to us in a sacrificial context. You'll remember last week, Brian mentioned that a lot of the language in the feast that Abraham provides for the three men, the two angels and the Lord, has sacrificial language. It's the finest flower. He's slaughtering an animal. But it's not just that. We should not lose sight of the big picture here that the Lord comes to share a meal. Abraham offers a meal to the Lord himself. Abraham welcomes the Lord. He welcomes his presence. He stands before him. In a lot of the ways, these are the things that the temple signified. Abraham just didn't even realize that that was what was going on at first. And following that sacrificial meal, Abraham makes intercessions. He pleads. He comes before the Lord to ask certain things representing the nations, representing the potential righteous who might be in Sodom. And so in this whole scene, we see Abraham is taking up the duties of a priest. We don't often think of Abraham as a priest. And all the commentaries try to say, Abraham's being a prophet here. He's being a prophet. He's just like Moses. But we should not lose sight of how priestly his work is right here, mediating for the nations. And Israel was supposed to see itself here. You'll remember that they were called to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. They were called as a nation to represent God to the world and the world to God, and they failed miserably. Rather than interceding for the world, they assimilated to it. Israel, in this 
instance, is a whole lot more like Lot going into Sodom and dwelling in the city gate than Abraham, who followed God's call to separate from his people, to come out from the nations, to start a new people, a remnant of humanity. Well, what do priests do? What is Abraham doing that's priestly besides what we've already talked about? He's representing the nations. He's representing God's holiness. What is his plea based on? God, you are holy. You won't condemn the righteous. Abraham is coming before the Lord, and he's trying to represent the righteous in Sodom, if there are any. He pleads, act justly, do rightly. You're the judge of all the earth. But alas, there are no righteous found in Sodom. There's nobody to be spared. There's no one to be remembered by God like Abraham is. One of the other texts I thought about for a New Testament lesson was the wheat and the tares. Sodom is only tares. There's no wheat there. And so we get to Abraham's petitions. We'll see there as we listen that Abraham gets increasingly careful. Tried as I read this to give it that inflection. But increasingly, as he's asking these things, he's getting more and more deferential. The second time, I am but dust and ashes, God, and I have undertaken to come before you. But he does come before God. He, he reasons with the Lord. He's even bold at points. It probably stands out as repetitive, not just that Abraham is, is approaching both boldly and carefully, but that there's this repetitiveness. The first time you hear this passage after a while, you go, okay, I get the point. Come on, come on, what's going on? But as we listen, we'll hear a few things which help point out some things to us. So there's a pattern here of twos and threes which add up to sixes. So, twice each, Abraham will just ask a question without any kind of preface, and then twice each, he'll say, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, or let not the Lord be angry. He'll alternate these, trying to not be too bold. And then we also see a pattern in God's responses. In the first instance, God will spare them. This is the first time we, and only time we see this. Twice he says, I'll not do it. It's just a very generic do verb. I'll not do this thing. And three times the Lord answers, I'll not ruin it. I'll not destroy it. And on the one hand, this gives us a sense of completeness. There are two sets of three, and we like to listen for threes. But on the other hand, it's also incomplete because it's a six without a seventh. Abraham's requests are conditional. We don't know God's final answer until we read ahead. The seventh is his destruction and his rescue of Lot. And so Abraham comes before with these repetitive things, and what is he asking? God, you're righteous and just. You won't, you won't cast away the wheat with the tares. You won't destroy the righteous as you destroy the wicked. And of course, Abraham already knows, as we do, God is just, that he will execute in righteousness. Abraham likely knew the story of the flood, too. 
He knew that God saved when men were wicked. But there was no harvest to be had in Sodom. This is not explicitly stated by Abraham or the narrator in this passage, but I think we're invited to to infer that Abraham's concern here for justice and for the righteous is a concern for Lot. He's really concerned for his nephew. If he just wanted it to be righteous, why would he bargain down and down and down? He knows what Sodom is like. Let's remember back to the first time we heard about Sodom and the king of Sodom was that war in chapter 14, the War of the Kings. And as we saw, Brian preached, Abraham specifically does not enter into covenant with Sodom. He's invited to be a vassal, and he says, no, I've sworn an oath to the Lord. I cannot do so. Abraham has no fealty to Sodom. He's not their vassal. He's concerned for his nephew. He's concerned that there might be righteous there. And these numbers, they're not random. 50 is roughly, we estimate, about half of the fighting men of a very small town. So what if 50% of, of the households there are righteous, Lord? And he comes down and he comes down and he comes down and he ends at 10 And 10 is about the least you can have to count an administrative unit in the ancient world. Abraham goes as far as he can go. It seems like God is cooling on the idea. Those three responses in a row, God is indicating, I'm done here, Abraham. 10 is enough. You got three of the same answers. And we see that. Abraham recognizes that. Just one more time, he says. Just one more time. But Abraham is here pleading. He's pleading for God to act in accord with his character, to act in accord with what he has done throughout history. And so we come to our second point about Abraham's righteousness. What are we talking about here? Throughout this passage, again and again, we're asked, who's righteous enough? What kind of righteousness are we looking for? As good Reformed Protestants, we're very uh, familiar with Paul's teaching on absolute righteousness before the law. We can think about Romans 2 and 3. Nobody is righteous. The law condemns everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. Because of our inherited sinfulness, Paul will talk about in Romans 5, we enter this world, as I've already said, as enemies of God. Children of wrath by nature were born unrighteous. David will say, in sin did my mother conceive me in Psalm 51. We're very, we're very familiar with that kind of righteousness, that absolute characteristic. And so we want to answer this question with Abraham's not righteous enough. Lot is not righteous enough. There's nobody righteous at all. But here Abraham is serving as a type In some sense, both Abraham, maybe even Lot, are considered righteous. Righteous enough, not perfect righteousness demanded by the law. But we'll remember, even the New Testament calls Lot righteous. God delivered righteous Lot. We remember, of course, that 
Even in Genesis, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's that righteousness before God. But he was, of course, also called to live out his days, walk before me, and be blameless. That was a relative righteousness. Here in this passage, he's to lead his family in the way of Yahweh, in the way of the Lord. See that in verse 19. What we have to reckon with and what Abraham knew is that God has not ordinarily chosen to immediately punish sin. He delays his wrath. The Old Testament talks about this often as the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. And barring catastrophic wickedness, God doesn't come down and just destroy people when they sin. We do not see God intervening in judgment now. He stores it up. He waits. We see him do this in the garden. He does not put Adam and Eve to death immediately. That same word, put to death the righteous with the wicked. He does give his curse upon the serpent, upon the woman, upon the man. But he also blesses them. He promises the seed to come. He holds back his wrath. And this day of the Lord is what we Christians would call the second coming of Christ. We've already confessed it in the creed. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming back. Here in this story, God's judgment does break in because of the catastrophic wickedness of the city. We see it elsewhere, as we've already noted, in the flood. It will break in later in the Exodus. The plagues will come upon the Egyptians because of their harsh treatment of God's people. It will break in as they enter Canaan, and they put to death some Canaanites. And so here it's breaking in. God's judgment is coming down. Like those prophets and psalmists ask, God is putting his finger down, and the mountains are smoking. Fire's coming. We, like the original audience who heard this, already know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. It was desolate. So we must ask ourselves this question again and again. What is righteous enough? Why is Lot saved? And as we read the story as a whole, we hear what happens with Lot. First, Lot is hospitable. He brings in the angels. He gives them unleavened bread. He presses upon them to stay the night at his house because he knows it's dangerous out in the city square for them. And however unsavory his methods are, if you're familiar with the story, he does try to protect them, to appease the mob. We see in 1919 that the Lord has compassion upon Lot and rescues him. And here's his plea. As I've already mentioned, later in the New Testament, Lot will be called righteous. And as the story closes, we hear this, that God remembered Abraham and delivered Lot. It doesn't say that God remembered Lot. While Lot is not completely wicked, he kind of passes the test. It's still less than 10. And I also don't think Lot really counts as a member of the city. Those men will tell him, you don't belong here. You're an immigrant. You want to act like our judge? You want to tell us what we can do? No, no, no. But Lot is still fixated on this world. He's a lot like Israel. Cozying up to the people 
of Sodom, living in the city, having a household in there, not wanting to leave. When we come back to this in January, we'll hear how hesitant Lot is to leave this city. And then he pleads with the angels, I can't go into the hills. The hills are dangerous. Let me go to a city. Lot is not righteous enough. His family is not righteous enough for Sodom to be delivered. There are no righteous there for it to be spared. There are only tares and no wheat. Lot is delivered because God hears and remembers Abraham. The righteous and blessed Abraham blesses Lot. We see this again and again. But Abraham does not save Sodom. So Abraham here is is righteous. He's a type of righteousness. He's the reason Lot is delivered, because God remembers Abraham. And he's righteous. He comes before the Lord, and he tries to do what he thinks is his calling. I'm going to intercede for the nations. I'm going to be a priest. He does a bold thing. He goes before the Lord and pleads. And because God has chosen Abraham, he remembers Lot. It's almost as if God reads between the the lines of Abraham's actual plea. I will save your nephew. The city is gone. And Lot himself has chosen to dwell in cities, wicked cities. As we hear about Lot, he progressively gets closer and closer to Sodom until the point where he's in the gate and he's living in the city rather than just being near it as he was before. Lot may be righteous in Abraham's eyes, but Abraham is the reason Lot is rescued. Lot, on his own, would have been there. We need to appreciate that God is holy and righteous, that his judgment does break in upon this world And it will finally break in. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. But there is better news that Jesus is the better, more righteous mediator who prays for the nations. He is the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Remember Galatians. If you've ever read Galatians, you probably got tripped up at that moment where Paul starts talking about seed singular and seed plural. And he comes back around and he says, Jesus is the seed, singular, and in him you will be blessed and be counted sons of Abraham. Jesus' prayers, Jesus' mediation, they're effective. Jesus prays and is answered. Jesus did and does pray for us now. When our Savior prays for sinners, they are saved. We read in our New Testament lesson him praying for his apostles and those who hear through their word. That's you and I, brothers and sisters. We are those who have heard. Our Savior is a mediator. He's the seed of Abraham. He is the one in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. While Abraham's righteousness in covenant, lacking, not perfect, delivers Lot and his daughters, not even Lot's whole household, just He and his daughters, three. Jesus' righteousness delivers Abraham. It's the reason Lot can be called righteous. It's the reason we believe the Old Testament saints are saved. Because of the righteousness of Christ. 
It's the reason that we have hope today, because he's our mediator. He's the one in whom nations will be blessed. He intercedes for us. He prays for us now. He pays our debt and gives us his own righteousness, clothing us in his merits. And God's judgment didn't stop breaking into the world when it broke in at Canaan or when Israel went into exile. The Gospels go out of the way to remind us that God's judgment broke in to the world on the cross. A lot of that language of the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, is used about the cross. The sky darkens. The dead are raised. The end times are happening right there on the cross. At length, the Gospels use apocalyptic language to describe what is happening there. God's judgment is breaking in on the chosen seed. The day of the Lord breaks into history on Golgotha, and Christ bears our punishment. He pays what he does not owe. That's the good news, brothers and sisters, that even though that day of judgment has come, that we can point and say, he took it for me and for you. We don't have to fear being in Sodom. Jesus is our righteousness. He gave us his righteousness even while we were enemies, even while we were just like those inhospitable, warring men of Sodom. And he doesn't just give us his righteousness. He prays that we would be kept from the evil one. What does he pray for his followers? Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them by your word, which is truth. Make them one together. What's the final thing he prays for in our New Testament lesson? They would be with me. That they would see my glory. That's what stands before us if we trust in Christ for our righteousness. Being with him. Seeing his glory. And we know that his mediation not only saves us, but it changes us. It makes us holy. Abraham's righteousness did not change Lot. We see that in the immediately following story. The last time we see Lot is not a great moment for him. But Christ gives us resurrection life. He gives us the new man. He makes us grateful for the great salvation, for the judgment that he took. I started with, oh, would you rend the heavens and come down, O oh Lord? That's how the Gospel of Mark starts. Would you rend the heavens and come down? What does Jesus do? Rends the heavens and he comes down and he bears that judgment. He's our mediator. He's the better mediator. Some of you here probably know from our time doing membership, my favorite article of the Belgic Confession is Article 26. I won't read the whole thing because it's one of the longest articles in the Belgic Confession. I'll read you a, a portion. But this mediator, Christ, whom the Father has appointed between himself and us, ought not to terrify us by his greatness, so that we have to look for another one according to our own fancy. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Although he was in the form of God, he nevertheless emptied himself, taking the form of a man and a servant for us, and he made himself completely like his brothers." 
Suppose we had to find another intercessor. Who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies? Suppose we had to find one who has prestige and power. Who has as much of these as he who is seated at the right hand of the Father? And who has all power in heaven and on earth? And who will be heard more readily than God's own dearly beloved Son? Those prayers that Christ offers for you, brothers and sisters, are sure he's the best mediator. He loves you more. He has more power. He's closer to God. There is nothing else we can interpose between ourselves and God. Jesus stands there, willing and ready to save. We need to trust in him. He prays for us. He calls us to himself to find our salvation, to find our hope, to find our life in him and in no other. So I ask you today, trust in no one else. It's easy. It's easy to trust in the things of this world. It's easy to be clinging to the things of this world like Lot. But even Lot was delivered. Even Lot is called righteous. Righteous Abraham could not save a city, but Jesus will save nations tribes, tongues, languages, and innumerable people he promises to Abraham. And when he comes back with glory to judge, it will be our deliverance. He will usher in a kingdom of which we will have a part with certain justice, absolute peace, his holy reign. No more injustice, no more suffering. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. And for those who trust in the Son, we can point to Christ and say, we have been judged in Him. We have been united to Him and given His righteousness. And so we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. We will enter into that glory. We will be with Him and see His glory. Because we're not guilty, not in Christ. If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty, most merciful, holy God, we are thankful that you are a just God who cannot stand the wicked. We are eternally grateful that you are a gracious and merciful God who pardons sinners through the merits of your Son, through his work for us. We ask that you would give us your spirit to root this miraculous message, this gospel in our hearts. Comfort us with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Comfort us with the message that we can turn to him and have his glory and his righteousness put upon us like a coat, covering up and removing all of our wickedness. Help to point by your spirit, our longing for justice and for peace towards the world to come, where you will reign, where you will be king, where we will be as we were created to be, where we will be your subjects. We will reign together with you in a glory and in a world without end. Lord, give us your spirit to increase our gratitude and our hope in the world to come, in your Son, in our place. And by your Son and in the Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.